Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the Islamic Thoughts Podcast. Today we'll be continuing with the history of fiqh with our guest Salman and with your host Atsis. So in the last episode, we covered some really, really brief outline and details concerning the current state of studies that are ongoing both in an academic sense and both in a traditional sense. Uh, whether it be the need for critical analysis or whether it be need for development and actually perceiving what is actually going on within the state of uh, research today. So continuing further to that, um, this episode will really be getting right into the history of fiqh within itself, uh, starting directly from the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and developing from there through the companions and so on onwards. Now, within a contemporary sense, um, all of us are aware, generally speaking, of the four madhahib, the four schools of thought within Islamic fiqh, um, which, you know, many of us will either incline to one madhahib or many of us will actually be aware of sort of what roles they play, along with the differences, so on and so forth. However, from a historical point of view, the questions that really are required to ask with the implications and the ramifications of how the development initially took place and sort of the impact it has on our fiqh today. And none of these questions are really asked. So there then it actually comes a really big need for us to actually address these issues from a historical perspective and actually go through the specific details that concern the actual evolution within itself, the formulation along with the codification uh, whether that be in the form of usul, uh, or whether that be in the form of just legislation. So, moving right on to it, um, one of the first things man, that comes to mind when we actually speak about fiqh, generally speaking, is that we actually want to follow the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, both in terms of how you know revelation was taken from him, and how it was actually implemented through actions and the sayings of Rasulullah. So where do we start in terms of fiqh having a beginning point and where it initially even, you know, begins formulating from? Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulullah wa ba'd. Um, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, as you will all be aware, uh, when he was 40 years old, the revelation began. He received revelation for the first time in the, the cave of Hira. And then he started preaching his message and followers started entering into the religion. And he started providing them guidance. A certain um, ahkam were revealed uh, about Salah and some other thing. Then after the Sahaba and the Prophet ﷺ migrate to uh, Medina, 13 years after the beginning of Revelation, um, uh, and established their own community. This is when the process of legislation really starts to um, to pick up, if you like, because now they're their own community and it needs rules and regulations and laws uh, governing um, the makeup of the community and uh, shaping the sort of society that Islam intended to create. Because in Mecca, um, beyond um, certain aspects of, of uh, personal conduct and worship, 
personal worship, um, it, it wasn't really possible to build social institutions. So legislation in that sense is limited in in Makkah. But when we come to Medina, we start having a lot more and a lot more detailed uh, um, uh, legislation is given to the companions. And so, for example, you see that that um, Surah Al-Baqarah, which is uh, one of the first surahs to be revealed in Medina, if not the first surah to be revealed in Medina, um, basically sort of covers all of the abwab of fiqh. So there's discussion about salah, zakah, um, there's discussion about siyam. Um, uh, basically, the only lengthy discussion about siyam in the Quran is in Surah Al-Baqarah. Discussion about hajj. Uh, a lengthy discussion about Hajj, uh, financial laws, uh, criminal law, crime and punishment, basically, um, marriage, divorce. Um, all of these things are dealt with in Surah Al-Baqarah. Starting with the revelation of Surah Al-Baqarah, the, um, the, the Quran, the Sharia, is basically engaging in a sort of... Uh, uh, community building. It's developing a society. In fact, developing the foundation of a new civilization. And so um, a lot of the ahkam that, that we know are either um, uh, revealed in Medina or they become obligatory in Medina for the first time or they're developed considerably uh, in Medina. So for example, we have commands for charity or for zakah in a general sense um, in Makkah, but the specifics are mostly, for the most part, uh, if not entirely laid out in Medina. Hajj does not become obligatory until after the hijrah in Medina and so forth. So, uh, And then, of course, it goes without saying that, that, that so many of the financial ahkam are not revealed until Medina. And all of this happens in a gradual process. It's not... Um, all uh, immediate. There's a gradual process, and there's also um, uh, abrogation of certain ahkam. Certain ahkam are sent down temporarily, and then replaced eventually with ahkam that are are, are permanent. Uh, one aspect of this graduality in uh, in the ahkam that should be highlighted is something that Aisha radiallahu anha said. Said that you know that um, the, that uh, the Quran initially just came down calling on people to believe and reminding them of the hereafter and, and what have you. If, if the Quran had in the very beginning come down and told them that, you know, that um, give up drinking alcohol, uh, etc., that no one would have followed it. So the, um, the Quran also, um, you could say, uh, the Sharia was revealed in a fashion such that the foundation is to develop your iman. It's to develop your um, your connection to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and then after that come the details, because the, the sort of the the foundation of 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 uh, the Islamic legal system, if you like, is a person's own moral compass and his conscience uh, his conscious so the foundation is is that um, 
a person's conscience and his fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are what drive him uh, to adhere to the laws. It's not a fear of getting caught or a fear of, of punishment. And this is something that is unique uh, to the Islamic legal system if compared to a secular legal system. Because at the end of the day, with, the, with, with the, a secular law, really the only thing that is compelling a person to adhere to it is that it's in his best interest to do so. But if he finds it in, in his interest to circumvent the law and he thinks he won't get caught, then he's very likely to, to go ahead and do that. And this is one of the things that's interesting. When you look at Surah Al-Baqarah, Surah Al-Baqarah starts off with that this is the book that we have sent down. Uh, there can be no doubt about it. And it is guidance for the muttaqin, those who have taqwa. Taqwa is basically God consciousness or fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then this theme of taqwa is, is highlighted repeatedly throughout the surah, such that you could say that taqwa really is the, the, the foundation of the, of the surah. Found, it's the theme that runs throughout the surah. Uh, the word taqwa and its various derivatives are used 35 times throughout the course of the surah. So it's, it's something that is very much being highlighted as sort of the foundation of the sharia. Because as I said, the this, this surah it deals uh, so much with all the different laws and regulations. Uh, more so than most surahs of the Quran. And the other thing that's interesting about this surah is um, taking from the name of the surah, Surah Al-Baqarah, the cow, it's actually in reference to a story about the Bani Israel and a cow that they were given, sorry, not a cow that they were given, but rather uh, a cow that they were asked to slaughter. There's a particular story, it comes up in the middle of the surah, most of you will be familiar with it. And they're commanded to slaughter a cow and they start asking questions. And basically, but they're asking questions in, in a sort of a, a uh, arrogant and challenging fashion rather than submitting to what Allah has legislated for them. And then finally, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, after they ask all these questions and he, he, he uh, places on them various um, additional requirements as to what sort of cow should be slaughtered, Finally, in the end, they slaughter it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَذَبَحُوهَا وَمَا كَادُوا يَفْعَلُونَ They did slaughter it, but they almost didn't carry out the command that they were, that they were given. So there's a contrast between this is the, the attitude of, um, of the Bani Israel, for which they are were, they were condemned, that throughout their history, this is the way that they behaved as is emblematic in the story, after which the surah is named. And even they're quoted in the surah as saying, when they're commanded um, uh, to hold on to the Torah, they say, wa We hear and we disobey. And so at the end of the surah, uh, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the believers, one of the things that he mentions about them is that they say, wa We hear and we obey. So, taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and obedience to his command, commands. Obedience to his commands, not 
as the Bani Israel did, where they question the command, they don't really want to, to, to carry it out, and they're looking for ways to get out of it, and then eventually they reluctantly carry it out. This is not ta'ah. This is not obedient. Uh, obedience is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has described to the believers, that when they receive the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they say, سَمِعْنَا وَأَطَعْنَا So this, this spiritual aspect this faith aspect is very fundamental to uh, the Sharia and the 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 um, carrying out of its command. So this this element is there from the very beginning of legislation. That this is the foundation, and this is something that um, you can't really have uh, with uh, any legal system that is not going to be based or any set of uh, rules and regulations that is not going to be based on revelation. So uh, this is one one thing that is very, uh, I think, fundamental and stands out about the way that um, uh, even looking at the, the way that legislation begins. And then the Quran very clearly lays out in innumerable verses, uh, you know, the principle of, uh, of pri- primacy of of uh, the Quran and Sunnah, or the primacy of obedience to Allah and His Messenger, Rasul, obey Allah, obey the Messenger. Whoever obeys the Messenger, he has, in fact, obeyed Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Um, in another verse, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "Fala wa la hatta fima uh, uh, And know by your Lord, Allah swears by by the Lord of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi uh, they will not believe until they make you judge in all the disputes between them. And then, um, and then, uh, they uh, submit willingly. They don't feel any hesitation about your commands and they submit willingly. So very clearly, the Quran establishes the authority of the Sunnah of the Prophet So we have, uh, the Quran is establishing that the foundation of the Sharia is the Quran and it is the Sunnah. And so this is something that is is uh, really is reinforced by the innumerable verses about obedience to the Prophet and obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, and referring back to them uh, and so forth. Um, so th- this is in terms of the sources. But obviously, these sources uh, require transmission to the Prophet He encourages the Sahaba to transmit his teachings. Convey from me what I'm teaching you, even if it is a single ayah. And this is particularly important when we consider in you know, um, in the in terms of the context, that the uh, Prophet ﷺ is speaking and he's saying this at a time when the Arabs, for the most part, are illiterate. So um, the transmission of the sources of the Sharia, the Quran and the Sunnah, is very much dependent on the efforts of individuals who are going to memorize the Qur'an, memorize the Sunnah. And also there is an element of writing taking place, but uh, it's very much um, 
dependent on this communal effort to preserve and transmit the Quran, uh, it, there is very much uh, a communal effort to transmit the Sunnah. In another hadith, the Prophet ﷺ, he says, says, May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brighten the face of a man who hears my words, memorizes them, grasps them, and then conveys them just as he heard them. Meaning, conveys them accurately. Uh, and then he goes on to say, in the same hadith, or in other wordings, uh, in another wording, he says, For perhaps the one who is a transmitter of fiqh will convey that fiqh to someone who is afqahu minhu, has greater fiqh than he. In other words, has greater understanding of the fiqh that is contained in, in these words. Has greater understanding of the rules or the guidance that can be derived from this, from these words, from this hadith. And perhaps there will be a person who is a transmitter of fiqh. In other words, who is transmitting the, the hadith of the Prophet with the fiqh that it contains, but he himself has no fiqh. He's not capable of understanding the hadith properly. He's not capable uh, of, um, of deriving from it the ahkam that can be taken from it. So not, every, not everyone just... No, so this, it, 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 I think this it establishes an idea which is very important, um, which is that just knowing the text, whether it's an ayah of the Qur'an, or hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. That's, of course, assuming that the hadith is authentic, which is a, you know, a major issue that comes up with the transmission of hadith. Is this an authentic hadith? Is it not an authentic hadith? And so forth. Um, it doesn't mean that the person is qualified to interpret that text or to state with, with authority or confidence that this text means this. Because it has to be understood in light of... Uh, of uh, what are the possible, number one, uh, it requires a command of the Arabic language um, to ensure that a person genuinely understands what are, is the meaning of this text or the possible meanings that can be taken from this text. It has to be understood in light of all of the other texts so you're not understanding it in a fashion that contradicts. Um, you're not understanding it in a fashion that contradicts other texts. And so... Um, and it also points to the fact that there will be a class of scholars or class of, uh, of fuqaha who actually possess fiqh. They're not merely transmitters of fiqh, but they are able to derive the fiqh for themselves from the texts. So the Prophet is, is giving an ishara, he's giving a, an indication of this meaning as well here. Uh, one other thing that I would like to highlight, looking at the time of the Prophet ﷺ himself, uh, 
Um, actually, coming back to the to the the point about Aisha Radhiallahu and her statement that uh, that uh, you know that the um, that the Quran didn't simply come down from the very beginning with ahkam that uh, you know kamar is haram. She said that no one would have followed it, and again, that's because so the Quran is looking at um, at in terms of legislation, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the legislation in a fashion that uh, accounts for uh, the need for spiritual development. And uh, also it accounts for priorities, pri- prioritizing that some things have to be prioritized before others. Um, and it, you can see this in the fact that the legislation is gradual. Otherwise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is capable of legislating whatever he wants. So he could have sent down at the very beginning in Surah Al-Baqarah, uh, say, let's say at the at the beginning of the Madani period, if you want to say that the appropriate time for legislation is after uh, they moved to Medina, he could have sent down all of the ahkam then. But he didn't. And so this so there was there was a sort of a prioritization in the fashion in which the ahkam were uh, were revealed, that some things are fun, more fundamental than others, and that the other things build on those fundamentals. And this is a very important point to keep in mind when you know anytime looking at um, at interpreting the nusus of the Sharia, interpreting the texts of the Sharia, that uh, you know where does this uh, issue or this text fit in the overall picture, in the overall scheme. Uh, the last point I wanted to highlight, and this is something that is very interesting, and I, and I haven't seen a great deal of discussion about this, but it's something that I've always found very fascinating, which is that um, Amr radiallahu anhu, um, in this period when the revelation is still ongoing, and the ahkam have not all been revealed. Because obviously once the Prophet ﷺ dies, revelation stops. And when revelation stops, legislation in the sense of uh, of addition to the sources of the sharia, the Quran and Sunnah, stops. Uh, at that point, there can be no new rules except rules that are being derived um, by way of ijtihad by way of interpretation of the texts. And so new rules would effectively be basically uh, uh, only come about when there is a new situation that comes about that requires a rule, which requires going back to the Quran and Sunnah to find guidance for this new situation. Because the Quran and Sunnah have been given to us to serve as uh, guidance until the end of the world, because this was sent down as the final message, and the Prophet Sallallahu is, uh, as the Quran describes him, Khatim al-Nabiyyin, and so he's the final Prophet, there will be no legislation after him. Uh, so the revelation is complete with his death, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and so the legislation is complete as well. In this period when revelation is actually still ongoing, 
uh, one thing that I f- that stands out and I find it very fascinating is Umar radiallahu anhu is engaging in ijtihad already. Now we have instances where where sometimes the Sahaba uh, are perhaps engaging in ijtihad uh, because uh, he's been sent to act as a judge in in Yemen and he's not able to consult the Prophet sallallahu about everything. But Umar radiallahu anhu is with the Prophet sallallahu and engaging in in, in a sort of ijtihad and at times. Um, uh, encouraging the Prophet ﷺ to do something before any revelation has been revealed about it. And then revelation comes down confirming what Umar anhu said. Uh, so uh, we see an example of this that um, he told the Prophet ﷺ, you should take the Maqam Ibrahim as a place of prayer, as a musalla. And then the revelation, then Allah actually reveals in the Quran, وَاتَّخِذُوا مِن مَقَامِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ musalla." Take the Maqam Ibrahim um, as a place to pray, um, he encourages the Prophet ﷺ to veil off his his wives, basically, um, uh, uh, so that uh, uh, that you know that uh, men are not allowed to enter upon them, men are not allowed to see them, etc. Um, and so the Prophet ﷺ doesn't do anything in this regard until revelation comes down to him. Confirming the 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 suggestion of Umar In another case, we have the incident at the Battle of Badr. Um, after the battle is complete and the Prophet is considering what to do with the captives, he consults Abu Bakr and Umar. And Abu Bakr suggests to him that you know we should ransom them and you know we can use the ransom money to uh, to strengthen Islam and so forth, and there are our relatives, and so uh, it's best that we we ransom the prisoners and let them go. And Omar says, "No, uh, we should take a stern stance and execute them to show that that ties of kinship don't trump um, uh, the battle between." Islam and Kufr, and to show the strength of the Muslim community, because at this point in time, the Muslim community is very weak. So the Prophet ﷺ goes with the decision of of uh, Abu Bakr, and then when the revelation comes down, the revelation confirms that the ijtihad of Umar was correct. And there is a number of incidents like this. Not that Umar's ijtihad is always correct in, 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 the, uh, in the incident of the truce of Hudaybiyah. Umar was very upset and very much opposed to what the Prophet ﷺ did until, fine, uh, until in the end. Afterwards, he felt uh, that you know, he perhaps you know, crossed his limits uh, in the way that he, he dealt with the whole matter and the way that he dealt with the Prophet ﷺ. And so he feels great remorse for this. But there's a number of these incidents where Umar is already making ijtihad. And if Umar is making ijtihad, when revelation is still ongoing, and the revelation has not come down, giving a particular guidance about a particular issue, what is the basis of his ijtihad? 
And so it, se- it, seems, it seems to me that already from this point in time, Omar understands um, not just the texts of the Sharia and the apparent meanings of the texts of the Sharia, but has a deep uh, understanding and appreciation for the, for the deeper meanings uh, and objectives that underlie these texts and these, uh, uh, these commands. And so um, he is able, with his understanding of not just the, the meaning of the text, because the meaning of the text is something that would, be, would have been apparent to any of the Sahaba, uh, but his understanding of the sort of the deeper meanings of the text, uh, you could say a sort of an ability to read between the lines, uh, an ability to grasp the, the uh, not just the text of the Sharia, but the spirit of the Sharia. And this, is, this will be important later on in our discussion. That was really, really riveting. And it really demonstrates that when a lot of the times when we actually study fiqh as a discipline or as a subject, we really don't have the ability to appreciate fiqh in this manner from a historical perspective, especially in terms of this contextual element of how ijtihad began, uh, whether we look at it from the point of Umar radiallahu an, or whether we look at it from the companions around Rasulullah that were actually following the legislation of Rasulullah. Uh, which leads me on to really the second part to this, which is now once Rasulullah passed away, uh, naturally there wasn't this you know ability for people to come to Rasulullah like they once did and ask him directly for a fatawa, ask him directly for a ruling on a particular matter. So how does you know the beginning stages of ijtihad actually take root within the companions after Rasulullah. If we look at uh, the time after the Prophet ﷺ died, um, when new questions arise, or when someone comes and have a question, uh, we see very clearly from the example of the companions that if the question was something that had a clear, straightforward answer in the Quran, or in hadith that they'd heard from the Prophet ﷺ, they would answer on that basis. Uh, but if there was not such a clear answer, and if, uh, or alternatively, the uh, Sahaba did not know of an answer in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, because not all of them had heard all of the hadiths of the Prophet ﷺ. So you will find examples, for example, Abu Bakr will receive a question and he'll ask the Sahaba if they've heard anything from the Prophet ﷺ about that scenario. Uh, and likewise, you know, you see this with Umar anhu. And so uh, this process of a consultation sometimes bring to light hadiths that maybe Abu Bakr was unaware of or that Umar was unaware of or uh, and so forth. So there was, this, there was this very clear understanding that first and foremost, you must refer to the Quran and you must refer to the Sunnah. When the answer is not so, much, is not so clear or straightforward um, or 
the relevant texts are open to difference in interpretation. Uh, th those who were fuqahat from amongst the, the Sahaba, um, scholars, uh, the leading scholars amongst the Sahaba would make their own ijtihad, uh, basically uh, attempt some sort of interpretation of um, what they think the, the texts uh, dictate for this particular scenario, what they think that um, the sh Sharia wants for this particular scenario. And so uh, this brings up the notion of ijtihad that we brought, brought up with Umar radiallahu anhu. We see that Umar radiallahu anhu and other Sahaba as well were already engaging in some limited degree of ijtihad in the lifetime of the Prophet sallallahu in fact, another, another important incident that comes up in the lifetime of the Prophet that I should have mentioned is the incident of Banu Quraida when he sends a group of the companions to Banu Quraida and he says to them, None of you should pray Asr except when you reach Banu Quraida. And so uh, on their way to the dwellings of Banu Quraida, which are basically outside of Medina, uh, uh, just outside of Medina, um, the time for Asr comes in and so a group of the companions say well Asr prayer is going to get late and so the time has come in so we need to go ahead and pray and what the Prophet ﷺ intended was that we should rush what he meant by don't pray Asr till you get to Medina uh, sorry, intend to get to Banu Quraida, was hurried to reach Banu Quraida so that you can catch Asr there. Um, uh, so make haste on your way to uh, Banu Quraida. He didn't intend for us to delay the prayer. Uh, and the other group of companions said, well, you know, this is what the Prophet ﷺ has told us to do, and so that's what we're going to do. So some took what the Prophet ﷺ said at face value, and others took, uh, looked at what the Prophet ﷺ said, and rather, apply, rather than applying it in a literal fashion, they looked at what they believed to be the intent of the Prophet ﷺ behind the command that he gave, and uh, applied it accordingly. And you know, the uh, the narrator goes on to state that um, I believe it's Ibn Umar who narrates this hadith. He goes on to state that. Prophet didn't um, rebuke either of the two groups. And so from this incident, we see that um, already the Prophet is teaching them that at times you will differ in your interpretation of the Quran or of the Sunnah. And um, that this difference of interpretation is acceptable. And more, more than that, the Prophet ﷺ in another hadith, he said, um, um, that, you know, when the, when a judge does ijtihad, ijtihad al-hakim, fa'asab, falahu ajran. He does ijtihad, if the, if a judge performs ijtihad, and he reaches a correct conclusion, he will have two rewards. And if he errs, 
he will have one reward. But of course, the 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 idea here is that he's actually performing ijtihad, and ijtihad literally means to exert your utmost effort. So he's exerting his utmost effort to reach the right conclusion. This is also an indication that um, determining the right conclusion is not um, as simple as you know just finding a text and just understanding it any which way based on what you think uh, is the immediate meaning of the text. Uh, it's, it is something that you know requires effort. And when there's no text, obviously it requires uh, great effort and, and careful consideration. And this is where um, the role of Qiyas comes into play. Uh, what, is, what comes later on to be known as Qiyas and possibly also um, maslaha, that uh, you make analogies between cases that are present in the Sharia with uh, with the new cases, the, with the new scenarios that have come up, or you attempt. Uh, the idea of maslaha would be that you attempt to un- to understand what is sort of the 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 uh, purpose or objective that that the Sharia uh, would want to uh, achieve in in this particular scenario. So the, the type of ijtihad that is going on here, the Sahaba are not necessarily explicitly saying, well, I've done a qiyas here. Uh, well, I've done uh, ijtihad here that is not qiyas. Uh, this is something that will go on in, in later generations to become a bit of an, uh, an issue of dispute. Um, is maslaha uh, a delil? Is it not a delil or, or not? Um, in fact, some will even go on to question, is qiyas a delil or is it not? But as as uh, the fiqh of the various schools develops, basically everyone settles on accepting qiyas, except uh, when you come to the third century, you have the, uh, the Zahiri school appears and it rejects the idea of qiyas or analogy altogether. And so, uh, but generally speaking, the mainstream of the of all of the fuqahat, they accept qiyas as a source. And so, based on qiyas, they extend rulings from certain scenarios to uh, other scenarios. Uh, scenarios that are mentioned in the texts, they will, or rulings that are taken from the text, they will extend those rulings to... Um, Similar scenarios, and we have, in fact, uh, a letter that um, Umar radiallahu anhu wrote to Abu Musa in in Kufa, possibly. I think Abu Musa was at one point in Basra, but he wrote to him, uh, advising him, giving him various advice and guidance about uh, how to make judgment. And he mentions, um, I don't remember the exact wordings, but he says, "Qisil ashbah." make qiyas between similar cases. Uh, and so uh, this idea of qiyas is present. We do actually have some incidents where um, it does seem you can that that the that uh, this sahabi or that sahabi is in fact making qiyas uh, and is analogizing one scenario with another. And usually in the books of Usul al-Fiqh, they will mention some of these examples to... Um, to, to shore up this idea. But generally speaking, if we look at what are the main sources of the, the Sharia that sort of everyone, at least from the 
um, the four schools of thought agree on. You have Quran and Sunnah, which we've already discussed, and it's very clear how its authority is established. Um, Qiyas, question arises, Qiyas, or even this, just this idea of looking at the, the objective or the underlying rationale of a particular hukam and attempting, based on those rationales, to extend uh, those ahkam to other ahkam. How does this notion come about? Uh, you know, does the Quran say that that you know we should make qiyas? Does the Prophet say that we should make qiyas? And so, the um, the the you will find later on what happens is that various books of usul al-fiqh attempt to lay out arguments for this. And um, when Ibn Hazm comes along in his rejection of qiyas, he singles out those arguments and says, well. For example, there's a verse revealed about um, uh, in Surah Al-Hashar about Banu Nadir, where it mentions how uh, you know Banu Nadir were punished for their actions, and then Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala says, "Fa'atabiru ya ulil absar, take uh, less, take heed, uh, O you people of uh, you know of insight and understanding," and so. Some of the usuliyin say that well, this ayah fa'atabiru ya ulil absar. This is this is they'll mention they'll list this as um, one of the evidences for qiyas. As an example to illustrate, uh, they'll say that that the idea of taking lesson of ibra from from uh, this incident that has happened with the banu nadir is saying that if you do like them then you will have a fate like them. You will be punished by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as they were punished. So this is making a qiyas that the one who does like what they did um, uh, will receive a similar punishment. Now this is obviously, I think anyone who looks at this, um, this sort of argument objectively will say that this is quite a stretch to say that um, from a verse like this, we can take that we need to extend the you know the rulings of uh, that are mentioned in the text to new scenarios. I mean, it's quite it has nothing to do with deriving legal rulings. And so when um, uh, Ibn Hazm, when he addresses this argument, he addresses it in a very mocking fashion, saying basically what you're saying is that this ayah is saying that because the Banu Nadir said this. Uh, sorry, because the Banu Nadir did this and were punished, therefore make uh, qiyas of um, rice with uh, wheat in the hukam of riba. Obviously, this, when you look at it, when you put it that way, it sounds pretty absurd. So uh, the question arises: You know, where did the legitimacy of qiyas come from? Why did they start using qiyas in the time of the Sahaba and then afterwards? Um, uh, you know the tabi'in. This becomes uh, a a method that is used by the fuqaha. So where does its legitimacy come from in the Sharia? And so I think the, really the best answer for that is looking at um, coming back to what we discussed about Umar and the ijtihad that he was making in the time of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi Um Already in the time of the Prophet sallallahu the Sahaba were uh, engaging in um, 
in interpreting the Sharia in a fashion that involves looking not just at the 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 sort of the the literal meanings of the texts, but what is intended by the texts. And so this idea, I think, was very clear to them that the te- that the Sharia has been revealed to a- a- achieve certain wisdoms, and that these uh, rulings are not simply arbitrary. In fact, I would go for even further than that and say that um, the, that um, when it comes to interpreting texts, any text, whether it's texts of the Sharia or statements of people, um, it would be incorrect to simply look at the literal meaning of the words and to discount or disregard what the speaker intends. Uh, and I'll, I'll use an example to illustrate what I mean. Um, you know, one of the, the things, um, uh, one of the issues that uh, Ibn Hazm brings up in Al-Muhalla later on, and again, Ibn Hazm is, is uh, you know, a famous representative of the Zahiri school, and probably also uh, an example of someone who takes the idea of rejecting qiyas and rejecting ta'lil, ta'lil being the idea that there is an underlying um, uh, rationale behind every ruling, which oftentimes may be not explicitly stated in the text, uh, but can be rationally derived. Uh, he takes his this notion of rejecting ta'lil to the extreme and attempts to be consistent with it, that we have to apply the text as it's been stated, not as we think, not according to what we think it means. And so, um, uh, you know, he, the, the Prophet, he, as an example, the Prophet ﷺ has said uh, that he's, the Prophet ﷺ has prohibited urinating and standing water. Which is obviously uh, the difference between urinating in a in a body of standing water or a, a vessel, whether it be large or small, that contains standing water, as opposed to in a river or a stream that is running, is obvious that you know it will ruin that water and render it unusable, even if it's a very large body of water. And you could say that well, maybe um, this, uh, uh, that. The urine is such that uh, it doesn't significantly um, uh, corrupt the water or make it impure. It still is something that will is disgusting to people. And so, um, whether this is for certain scenarios haram or other scenarios makruh, the 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 purpose is pretty obvious here. So, f- for all of the fuqaha, there would be absolutely no difference between actually directly urinating in a body of standing water and between urinating uh, into a cup, for example, and then pouring that urine into the water. I mean, I think this is something that is... Um, 
it's quite obvious. And I don't think that this is something that, for example, Ibn Hazm himself uh, doesn't grasp. He obviously he's, he was he's an intelligent person. He's able to grasp the obviousness of this. But because he's convinced that that opening this door of ta'lil, of unstated rationales in the text, once you open that door, then you have to accept it where it's less obvious. Because you've accepted that this is this is uh, that this this happens, and so because he's concerned that opening that door basically means opening the door to um, he has a very lengthy sort of argument, I think. Uh, and probably uh, you could say uh, uh, certain concerns that for him are so great that uh, that that rejecting ta'lil is his priority. And so he's willing to be consistent with his rejection of ta'lil, even if it leads him in this scenario to say something that is absurd. And so he says, actually, uh, that that if a person urinates... Um, in a cup and then pours it in uh, in standing water that this is not prohibited because uh, that's not what the hadith says. And so if, if you look at this example, in this example it's fairly obvious that uh, if you disregard what the text if you disregard the, the unstated meaning that underlies the text. The objective of the speaker behind what he has stated, um, you will end up misinterpreting and misapplying the text. And if that's true in this example where the unstated objective is fairly obvious, then it applies also in other places where the unstated objective might not be as obvious. And so I would argue that this is, in fact, this is a natural way of understanding speech. And so this is, so um, the, the sort of the mystery or the debate about where does qiyas, or uh, more broadly speaking, ta'lil in the uh, text of the sharia, where does the justification for it come? I think it's a question that doesn't require an answer because it's obvious. Uh, so I think this sort of approach developed where the Sahaba are looking at, at ta'lil. And if an illah is present in a ruling that is stated in the text, then if we understand that this is something that the Sharia wants, that this is an objective that the Sharia wants to uphold, that the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dictates that... Um, that he would want that he would want to uphold that uh, that objective or that wisdom in similar cases where the same issue the same meaning is present. So this is basically the idea of qiyas. Other questions come up. I don't really want to go into them too much. But for example, in you know with the Sahaba and the Tabi'in, you have the issue of ijma. How does ijma come about? This is a big question. I'm not going to actually attempt to answer this, but the idea of ijma and ijma being an authority, how exactly does it come about? Um, uh, and what are its ramifications about what it means? Uh, but what I will highlight here is that uh, this also has, uh, to understand this issue, the historical aspect 
is, I think, very important. Um, when, you know, the fuqaha started using ijma as a dalil, the question arises, when and why did they start using ijma as a dalil? Now, this is a really big question. and it's something that requires really a lecture entirely of its own. But when and why did they start using ijma? Um, particularly if you consider later on, you'll have um, the usuliyin differ about what are the conditions of ijma. So some of them say that uh, for an ijma to actually take force, that the mujtahideen that agree on a particular hukam, that you have to wait for that era to come to an end. And what does it mean for that era to come to an end? It means that the particular fuqaha who agreed on that hukam, you have to wait until they've all died. And if they all die, and in that time, no, khilaf, no new khilaf has appeared, then... Um, this becomes uh, a binding consensus that uh, is a delil, that is an evidence for ahkam uh, shariya. I think if we look at this opinion, which by the way, this is actually the opinion of the, um, this is considered the official view of the Hanbali school, uh, which is the school that I've, I've studied. If we look at this opinion from a historical perspective, what are the ramifications of this? Does this are we saying that that the Sahaba in their time were were debating issues, and then you know if they reached an opinion and all of them were agreed on it, that this is in fact the ruling of this issue? Did they say okay, let's 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 make a record of everyone who's here in the room as if all of the mujtahideen are gathering in a room and discussing everything and uh, reaching a conclusion. Did they say, okay, now we need to record, you know, let's, let's take roll call of everyone who's here in the room. And then when the last of us dies, if nobody has disagreed by that point, this then becomes a binding ijma. I mean, if you're going to say that this is how ijma works, is, is this what was happening? I, I mean, this idea, uh, this idea, how does how does it work, and where did it come from? So, uh, in any case, the reason I'm highlighting this is that when you again, when you look at things from a historical angle, even whether it's an uh, uh, if, whether it's a fiqh issue or um, an usuli issue in this case. Looking at it from a historical angle oftentimes give you uh, an important insight on 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 that issue. So I think I can I think it's fairly safe to say that that this opinion, when you understand it in the historical context, it just doesn't make any sense. Like it, it's when you put when you put it that way, when you actually think about what the ramifications of this are, it's it, it sounds preposterous. And so, basically, basically, it is preposterous. This opinion is preposterous. Uh, again, there's bigger questions to be asked about ijma and how did ijma come about and how did the uh, scholars start using ijma. But basically, 
um, and how does it work. But the place for that is in the books of Usul al-Fiqh, uh, not in a short introductory um, discussion like this one. But So uh, we have ijma, and at some point early on, we, we find that the scholars start using ijma. Uh, in particular, uh, again, if you look at the statements of uh, the fuqaha, the four imams, uh, Abu Hanifa, uh, Malik, Shafi'i, and Ahmed, and others from these early generations, you find very clearly that they developed this uh, theory of ijma, uh, and so they considered also uh, a, dal uh, a dalil or a way to derive ahkam. The one thing I will highlight about ijma is to say that um, ijma is not necessarily in and of itself a dalil because uh, legislation is complete. Remember, we, we discussed this point. Legislation is already finished. So there cannot be new legislation. And so in that sense, um, ijma is not an independent dalil. But uh, the idea of ijma basically is that when there is a true consensus, when there's a true consensus, this is an indication that um, that whatever there was to be said, whatever evidence there was to be brought to the table must have been brought to the table. Um, and so this is what gives ijma its authority. Uh, so that's in terms of looking at the development of how ijtihad developed uh, sort of from an usuli angle. There's other questions that come about, such as qawl uh, sahabi the opinion of a Sahabi, because as you're well aware, um, or many of you will be well aware, many of the many of the madhabs consider, um, or many of the usuliyin have come to consider the qawl of uh, a Sahabi, the opinion of a Sahabi, the legal opinion of uh, of a scholar from the Sahaba to be a, a an evidence. But again, the question comes up, well, how did this come about? Obviously, in the time of the Sahaba, um, they weren't going around telling one another that, well, I'm a Sahabi and my call is, is what I say is a delil, and so therefore you have to accept what I say. Um, so, again, the question comes, when did they begin using, or when did scholars begin to see uh, the opinions of Sahaba as evidence, and why? Because obviously the Sahaba, as we said, legislation ended with with uh, the death of the Prophet and the sources of the fundamental sources of legislation are Quran and Sunnah. Quran and Sunnah, or you know, via qiyas or ijtihad, uh, extending the meaning and guidance of the Quran and Sunnah to new scenarios. Uh, which essentially fundamentally comes back to the Quran and Sunnah. Even Ijma' fundamentally comes back to the Quran and Sunnah. So, the opinion of a Sahabi is, is, is in and of itself neither of those things. Obviously, the Sahaba are fallible beings. They can err. They differ amongst themselves. And when they, di when they differ amongst themselves, everyone agrees that at this, in this scenario that their opinion is not a is not an evidence, it's not a hujjah. So, 
if they're not infallible and if they can err um, in their ijtihad, what makes their opinions hujja? And so this is, this is this, again, this is another one of those issues that looking at it from the historical perspective will help give uh, shed light on how to deal with with uh, with uh, these usul and how they develop. But again, that's a very big discussion. Uh, I, my, it's not my intention to give an entire lecture on 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 each of these usul issues. But this is just to give you an idea about the importance of understanding the historical development of both these usuli issues and the development of uh, fiqh itself and the development of fiqh into schools, schools of thought. So um, a number of, if, if in terms of looking at the sort of the actual fiqh of the Sahaba and who were the fuqaha of the Sahaba, uh, a number of scholars, amongst them Ali ibn al-Madini, and others have highlighted that there is uh, certain Sahaba who were well known for giving fatwa and for their ijtihad. Um, and Ali ibn al-Madini in particular, when he discusses this, he highlights seven of them. Um, he says, Umar, Ali, uh, Ibn Mas'ud, Zayd ibn Thabit, uh, Ibn Abbas, there's two others I'm forgetting now at the moment. Obviously, he then he goes on to say that Abu, there's no doubt that Abu Bakr and uh, and Uthman are also scholars uh, and also much the heads, but they don't have as much uh, fatwa and not as much of their fiqh has been transmitted to us. And so this is why he didn't count them amongst this, the seven major ones. And then he goes on to say, as for these um, these Sahaba that he mentioned, there are three of them in particular who had ashab, as he puts it, companions or followers, who learned their fiqh and learned their opinions and used to adopt, he says, they would take his path or his madhab. Um, and so he mentions that these three are Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Ali ibn, uh, sorry, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Zayd ibn Thabit and Abdullah ibn Abbas. So Abdullah ibn Mas'ud is in Kufa and Zayd ibn Thabit is in Medina and Abdullah ibn Abbas is in Mecca. And we'll find that uh, when we speak about sort of the major centers of Islamic learning in the first centuries of Islam, that they are these three, Mecca, Medina, Kufa, also, you have Al-Basra. So uh, these four are probably the most important. And then you could also add to that uh, Al-Sham, uh, which is perhaps not as important, but also is in there. Uh, Egypt and Yemen. So these are sort of the, mo the, the, sort of the centers of the, the Islamic world. Of them, the, the four most important are these that I mentioned, Makkah, Medina, uh, Kufa and Basra. Kufa and Basra both being uh, garrison towns that are established in Iraq by Umar radiallahu anhu uh, after the conquest of uh, Iraq and Persia. They're set up as garrison towns and they're sort of the centers of the, the, the Muslim armies 
who have gone and taken part in these conquests and are now se- uh, settling in Iraq uh, are, are, for the most part, concentrated in these two places. So this is why these become very important uh, centers. Uh, so Abdullah ibn Mas'ud uh, sort of becomes the reference point for the people of Kufa. And Ali to a lesser extent as well, because Ali, when he was Khalifa, was based in Kufa. And so Ali also has students and also uh, gives fatwa and uh, gives judicial decisions. And these become also an important source and reference point for fiqh in Kufa. But because he was busy with uh, fighting civil wars and busy with the the obligations of Khilafah, um, his influence is not as great as the influence of Ibn Mas'ud. Abdullah ibn Abbas is um, based in Mecca and his status as a faqih amongst the Sahaba is uh, undisputed. You know, from a very young age, um, he becomes very close to Umar ibn al-Khattab. Umar ibn al-Khattab is by uh, more or less the consensus of the Sahaba, the most learned of all of the Sahaba. And this is, again, an interesting point about Umar radiallahu anhu. His learning is not necessarily because he knows more hadiths than anyone else. Uh, because we find incidents where, um, you know, there are hadiths that he missed, he was unaware of. Um, uh, if that were the standard, then you know one could argue that that Abu Huraira is as knowledgeable as Umar, uh, or close to Umar. Yet Abu Huraira himself recognizes that Umar is far more knowledgeable than him. So, knowledge, so for them, the the standard of of what uh, is knowledge was not simply a matter of who knows the texts or who knows the most texts. Uh, although obviously knowledge of those texts is fundamental because uh, the Sharia is based on these texts, but uh, the understanding and the ability to understand those texts is just as important. But so coming back to Ibn Abbas, Ibn Abbas uh, f- um, during, uh, during the Khilafah of Umar becomes very close to Umar radiallahu anhu. Uh, Umar begins to include him in his sittings and, uh, t- uh, and uh, consult him uh, uh, in his gatherings where he gathers with many of the senior companions, he brings in uh, Ibn Abbas, even though Ibn Abbas is at that time uh, a young boy, a young lad. Uh, by the time of Khalifa, yeah, he would have still been fairly young. Yeah, I'm not sure now exactly what age he would have been, but he was 16. Uh, so, uh, you know, one time he... He takes him to a gathering, and the uh, a number of the Sahaba, the senior Sahaba, they object that we have sons who are in the same age as he is, and yet you brought him here. There's an incident that takes place where he asks them about the meaning of Surah uh, Al-Fat, and um, when Ibn Abbas answers, uh, he shows to the other Sahaba that Ibn Abbas is. Um, uh, surpasses even many of them in terms of his understanding, and this is why he has included him, uh, while he has not in, while he has not included others. And of course, the Prophet himself makes du'a for Ibn Abbas. Um, this du'a is 
recorded with various different wordings. But one of the narrations says, Allahumma faqihhu fi al-deen wa'allimhu al-ta'wil. Oh Allah, give him fiqh in the religion and teach him at-ta'wil, teach him the interpretation of the Quran. And so he goes on to become one of the great fuqaha of the Sahaba. And he also grows on to become a reference point of the entire ummah for the tafsir of the Quran alongside the fiqh. And then you have Zayd ibn Sabit. Zayd ibn Sabit uh, becomes uh, uh, a reference point for the people of Medina in terms of their fiqh. And this brings up uh, a question that we had discussed or we, we had um, alluded to a bit in our previous previous session, which was the discussion about um, were there regional schools of thought before the development of of uh, of you know the four schools of thought before the development of the four madahib? Uh, is there a Meccan school, a, a Kufan school, a, a Madani school, and so forth? And so, um, to answer this question, um, I think it's important to understand that if we're going to speak about a school existing in this in in these in this era, the Sahaba, Tabi'in, so forth, before uh, the appearance of the four Imams, then it's important to speak about this. Um, it's important to understand that um, any school that is going to exist, any school that is going to exist um, in this period will not exist in the same form of the madhahib that appear later. Um, so it's interesting that uh, you mentioned about, you know, some of the companions like Ibn Abbas and others that actually had influence on specific schools within specific areas. So now the next point would be that from a historical perspective, the way in which these schools actually developed further uh, in the time of the Tabi'eens and onwards. Um, and before, just before you even get to the topic of the madhahib stage um you know people academics like wal halaq they actually argue that even when we're defining what a school is geographically speaking um it's actually impossible to determine that everyone within a certain area was actually following a madhahib would you say um so i guess you know using this discussion and the analysis that's currently present on defining this, how would you even actually define that, you know, once a companion actually had an impact on a certain area, how his impact was perceived and translated among the jurists, amongst the tabi'in, and the people that actually took fatawa from them, or the fiqh, as we would say? Okay, that's, um, that's an interesting question. Um, this is something that uh, the historians who have written about this, whether from our traditional scholars or, um, you know, the Western Orientalist, um, the, the Orientalist scholars of the Western Academy, uh, there's a bit, there's some difference amongst them about how they uh, perceived this idea of, of schools, uh, basically sort of pre-Madhab schools of thought, 
associated with these regions. So you have a regional school in Mecca, and you have a regional school in uh, in Medina, and then in Kufa. And so some of them object that basically, you know, more or less, the, the, there's no, no such thing as a regional school of thought, because there's not anything in each of these regions that is particularly uniting all of the fuqaha of that place. And so you find them differing amongst themselves. Um, what's more is that Imam Shafi'i uh, in Al-Um, um, in his, uh, I believe this is in Kitab Jima' Al-Ilm. Jima' Al-Ilm uh, can sort of be summarized as uh, the summation of knowledge. And what he means by that is sort of a discussion on our knowledge of the Sharia, how do we arrive at it? And so it's basically, it's a, it's a, it's, um, he documents some of the uh, sort of heretical ideas that had appeared in his time. So you had some people who were rejecting the Sunnah altogether. You had others who were um, rejecting uh, Ahad hadiths and accepting Mutawatir. And one of these people is, um, is a scholar known as Ibrahim ibn Aliyah, and he's loosely associated with the Mu'tazila tradition. Uh, but I mean, it's not exactly clear to me whether or not he was actually a Mu'tazili or he was um, some sort of Mutakallim who had who sort of, you could say, was developing ideas of his own. One of the ideas that he puts forward is that basically we reject um, the Hadith reports and rely on Sunnah. And so, uh, sorry, not on Sunnah. He says we rely on ijma'. And basically, where there's no ijma', we have to take the Quran literally, according to its apparent meaning, uh, and um, rely on certain sort of general principles. So, for example, um, if uh, if there's no prohibition on something, it remains permissible. So he uses this sort of he tries to use this sort of framework to eliminate. Uh, what he feels is the uncertainty of uh, relying on Akhbar al-Ahad because Khabar al-Ahad can be Khabar al-Ahad I should define it for um, those who are unfamiliar Khabar al-Ahad basically is a report that is coming from you know individual chains of narration so the source might be a single narrator, single Sahabi, or a single Tabi'i, or so forth. And because uh, you know, an individual will not be infallible, it's possible that he could err. So this brings an element of uncertainty. So wanting to eliminate that element of certain uncertainty, he, he suggests this theory of ijma' that we refer to ijma'. And so uh, Imam Shafi asks him, okay, well, how are you going to determine ijma'? And he says, well, we can look at, you know, who is the mufti or the scholar that, um, that every, uh, every balad, every locale, every city or every, um, uh, you know, uh, region has recognized as their reference point for fatwa. So, you know, you would have a reference point for Basra, you would have a reference point for Kufa, for Mecca, for Medina, and so forth. Um, uh, we look at what they say and if they've agreed on something then that, then that is an ijma and so 
Imam Shafi, he then he it, at length he he rebuts this uh, this theory or this approach to how the ahkam of the Sharia should be de- should be derived. And one of the things that he addresses is this concept of ijma that he has. And he says, "Look, says something that I might." He then talks about what he himself has observed. He says, "I've seen for myself that if you go to Kufa, um, it, it, that I'm sorry." He says, "I saw this in Kufa that you would have." Um, some of the people follow or followers of Abu Yusuf. And some of them are followers of Ibn Abi Layla. And you'll find that uh, many of those who follow Abu Yusuf will speak ill of Ibn Abi Layla and say that he's not uh, someone trustworthy to take fatwa from. And likewise, those who are followers of Ibn Abi Layla, you'll find some of them uh, saying the same thing about Abu Yusuf. And not just that, you have some of them uh, actually follow Sufyan Thori. And those who follow Sufyan Thori won't follow Abu Yusuf and Ibn Abi. Some of them won't follow Abu Yusuf and Ibn Abi Layla. And then there are others who follow uh, a scholar by the name of Hassan uh, ibn Salih ibn Hay. Hazan ibn Salih ibn Hay is a name that probably uh, many of the listeners will not be familiar with, but he was actually a leading scholar and um, and uh, both a faqih and a muhaddith of, uh, of Kufa, who also happens to be known for certain uh, Shi'i leanings. But uh, Imam Shafi documents that he also had a following, actual people who were following him. Then he dis- he actually he mentions in detail. He describes that you know uh, uh, there was a similar situation in Medina that I witnessed, and so he mentions some examples. And then he he, descri- he describes a similar situation in Makkah, and it, it's interesting with the example that he he mentions in Makkah. He says that you know you have, for example, the followers of Muslim Khalid Zinji will look down on Sayyid Ibn Salim Al Qaddah. And likewise, those who follow Sayyid ibn Salim al-Qaddah, some of them will, 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 will go to excess in their criticism of Muslim Khalid al-Zinji. And so basically, his, his, the, the point he was making was in each of these areas, you have these scholars who have their followers, some of those followers. Now, that is, this doesn't necessarily mean that, that there is necessarily in all of these cases actual rancor between these scholars themselves. But he's saying that you will find amongst the the common people, some of them who take this person uh, by followers, it could mean some of them could be his students. In some cases, it could mean his his uh, uh, laymen who follow them or, or or trust them will can will speak ill of the other person to the point of saying that this person is not capable of giving fatwa and it shouldn't be trusted for giving fatwa. So, uh, you know, this. Uh, testimony of Imam Shafi. He describes the situation, I think, in these three places. And then he says, And we have heard of similar things in other places. These, and these three, I think it's these three that he mentioned. Uh, this is from, from what I recall. He mentions these three and he says that, you know, um, this is what I myself have observed. And you are aware of this. And I've heard similar in other places because this is this is actually it's sort of it's a it's a natural sort of uh, thing. So this does sort of uh, you know 
um, complicate the idea of there being some sort of regional school in each of these regions. So something I think that can definitely be said is that if we speak about regional schools, we cannot think of the regional school as being something like uh, the system of the madhab that develops later on with the four madhabs, where there is a recognized imam who is the ultimate authority and is the mujtahid mutlaq, and then there are b below him uh, there is certain hierarchy of authorities in the madhab who are capable of various degrees of ijtihad in the madhab. Uh, so clearly this notion of the madhab uh, that uh, you know we're probably fam more familiar with because this is what then becomes the historical reality f uh, for much of Islamic history. Certainly in, in this sense, um, the regional, regional schools, if there's a regional school, are not madhabs. Because there is not the sense that, okay, we are, represent the, the school of Mecca, and so therefore we belong to a single school of thought uh, that has a single reference point and a single authority. I think, so what I think, and I think it's important here to make this caveat, that much of what we're discussing here um, because, um, you know, when you look at hist history, you have historical data or information or sources, which are, which constitute raw data. And then there is sort of the construction of a narrative out of that data, uh, or those raw sources, as well as obviously there's an issue of, of making an assessment of the relative uh, value or the relative authenticity of that that raw information. Uh, in this case, I think you know with this um, uh, testimony of Imam Shafi, because it's directly written by Imam Shafi himself, and he documents something that he himself saw, and in many cases it's with circles that he himself was mixing with. So, for example, Muslim Khalid Zinji is one of the teachers of. Uh, uh, Imam Shafi, and so in his in the beginning of his his studies in Makkah, Muslim Ibn Khalid Zinji was his main fiqh teacher, and Sayyid Ibn Salim Al Qaddah is also one of his fiqh teachers. Uh, and um, so he is speaking directly about what he has witnessed. So in that sense, um, here there's not a question about the reliability of uh, Imam Shafi's testimony. I, I think we can say, um, uh, in spite of what, um, you know, some Orientalists like uh, Shat and others might think of, uh, might have tried to or claim about Imam Shafi, uh, I think it's safe to say that um, there's no question about the, the trustworthiness of his testimony here. But the question is, what exactly does this mean? What do we make of this? Uh, and I think um, it can be said that there are regional schools, but what does it, in, in this pre-Madhab era, but what exactly does it mean for there to be a regional school? I think uh, largely what it means is that um, in this era before the Madhabs and before we have a sort of comprehensive um, 
as the uh, as Western scholars would put it, a comprehensive canon, for example, of the Sunnah, um, that each region has sort of its own corpus that it's working with. So there are certain narrations of the Sunnah, uh, certain hadiths that are in circulation in Medina that are not in circulation in Kufa, and vice versa. You have certain scholars who were the teachers of fiqh for Medina, like Zayd ibn Sabit, and before him, Umar radiallahu anhu, uh, Abdullah ibn Umar, Aisha, etc. Um, for, whereas for the, the, the Kufans, you have Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Ali. And so Abdullah ibn Mas'ud has, as Ali ibn al-Madini and later on ibn Abdul Barr and others have said, each of the, you know, Ali, uh, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud in Kufa, Zayd ibn Sabit in Medina, and Abdullah ibn Abbas in Mecca have companions and followers who follow their madhab. Now, looking at the historical data, what we find is that following their madhab does not mean following their madhab in the sense of um, of the later the the sense of following a madhab and the fashion that following madhabs takes in later generations, where um, a madhab generally has a fixed authority, a fixed reference point, which is the imam of the madhab and his opinions, and works within the framework of his opinions. And each madhab perhaps having some of its own unique dynamics about how they determine uh, the opinion of the imam and the relative authority of, of the, of the uh, the uh, or the hierarchy of the authorities who are after him and how they deal with that and how they deal with their differences, um, but it's it's a very formalized structure. Um, you could say that the that the madhab, as it develops later on, is a formal institu- legal institution, whereas the regional school is a sort of a natural organic. Uh, fluid sort of um, uh, phenomenon where it's natural that if the scholars of this place, if we look at Kufa for example, that the main scholars of Kufa the main scholars of Kufa are the students of Ibn Mas'ud and then after him, their students. So it's natural that when much of the 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 fiqh of, of Kufa is coming back to Ibn Mas'ud, in the sense of not in the sense of taqlid per se, where where the followers of the school are sort of bound by the opinion of the Imam, but in the sense that these teacher-student relationships exist. Uh, you know, if I've, if, if you take someone like Al-Qama ibn Qais or Masruq, um, who spend a long time with Ibn Mas'ud, it's natural that they will take on many of his opinions, even though they have other teachers from the Sahaba, and so they're not necessarily in every issue following the view of Ibn Mas'ud. And likewise, af- after them, you have Ibrahim al-Nakhai. Ibrahim al-Nakhai has opinions of his own. He doesn't always take the opinion of Ibn Mas'ud. And then 
ابراهيم ستودنت حماد حماد ابن ابي سليمان is very clearly the heir of Ibrahim al-Nakhai. If, I mean, if we look at the historical reports, there can be no doubt that he is the heir of Ibrahim al-Nakhai. And then after him, his student, um, Abu Hanifa. Abu Hanifa is very clearly heir to this legacy of Ibrahim and Hamad. Uh, and this is something that, you know, I think historically can't be disputed. But I think... Uh, in terms of identifying it as a school, what that means is simply that um, because of the regional nature of, uh, of the learning, because the rihla, the, 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 the extensive uh, traveling that you'll find that the muhaddithin do later on, where they gather together the reports from all of the different major centers of learning, has yet to take place. The, um, it's natural that that every faqih will work for the most part with the materials that he has in front of him, which means the hadiths that are in, in circulation in his area and the fiqh opinions of the, of the scholars who preceded him, including his own direct teachers. The majority of which for a Kufan scholar are going to be Kufans. And the majority of which for a Medinan scholar are going to be scholars of Medina. Uh, and and so forth. There are other issues that come up, which is that um, in in Kufa in particular, there was sort of a unique sort of challenge if you compare Kufa to Medina. And so, in this sense, there are sort of each each uh, region has sort of its own unique dynamics that cause it in certain ways to be different from the other. Uh, and this is particularly if you compare Kufa and Medina. Um, Kufa had a greater problem with circulation of fabricated and extremely weak ports. And it seems that this goes back to the time of uh, Mukhtar al-Thaqafi. Mukhtar, I don't remember now the exact dates, Mukhtar takes control of... Mukhtar is basically uh, a Shi'i revolutionary figure who takes control of uh, Kufa in the course of the civil war between um, Marwan and then his son, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, on the, on the Umayyad side versus Abdullah ibn Zubair, and also you have the Khawarij. Uh, so these different... These, these four different groups sort of t are, exist at this time, and there's a civil war that's going on. And this is in, I don't remember now uh, the exact dates. This is in, I think, the 60s Hijri that, um, 70s Hijri that uh, Mukhtar takes control of Kufa. And so um, when Mukhtar takes control of Kufa, we have reports that show that he actually encourages the circulation of fabricated reports. So from this time, fa fabricated hadiths start going into circulation. Um, also, Kufa has a greater problem with what is known as Tadlis. Kufa has a greater problem with what is known as Tadlis. And Tadlis is basically where um, 
the narrator drops narrators above him in the chain of narration. And so um, the chain will be disconnected. And in some cases, that disconnection will not be immediately apparent, will not be obvious that there's an, uh, an intermediary in the chain of, trans, uh, train of narration that is not present. And so uh, the task of sifting the authentic hadiths from the inauthentic hadiths becomes uh, very tricky. Whereas for the Medinans, number one, Medina being the, uh, the center of Islam, and the place where the Prophet ﷺ lived. And in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there was over 30,000 companions there in uh, Medina. And so you have the, the majority of the companions, even after they scatter, even after the companions spread throughout the different lands, um, it goes without saying that, that there's still more of them in Medina. And so you have the companions and the children of the companions and their grandchildren in Medina. Uh, it goes with, it's, it's natural then that um, Medina has more hadith than from these problems that existed in Kufa. Um, the problem of determining the authenticity of a hadith is much more straightforward in Medina than it is in, in Kufa. And so this presents sorts, uh, a sort of a unique challenge for Kufa and um, that is not present for Medina. And so uh, it's natural that these sorts of local dynamics will have an impact on the way that fiqh develops in each locale. And inshallah, this is something that we'll um, come back to but when we come to discussing the, uh, the formation of the, the Hanafi madhab and how the Kufans and then later Abu Hanifa, how they dealt with um, this, this problem. That was really, really thorough. Um, and I feel like uh, just using the examples that you mentioned in terms of the impacts of the companions, within the period of the Tabi'een, really does give us a lot of insights into sort of where the stage of fiqh actually takes uh, precedence within that period of time, within the certain regions and so on and so forth. Now, I know that, you know, from here we would effectively go on to looking at the actual formation and the beginning stages of the former dahib, you could say. But that would be a very, very long topic. So just to conclude, I mean, I think this has been a very, very insightful episode where we have covered um, the Sunnah and sort of how the Quran was taken and the Sunnah was taken through legislative means as the basis. And thereafter, how the companions actually involved themselves in Ishtihad. Um, and, you know, we mentioned just a few, few details regarding principles of what would be considered as usul. For example, we mentioned qiyas, um, along with, you know, some hints of ijma'.
And we could very possibly actually even dedicate later on an episode on Usul where we could actually discuss these issues further. Um, so next episode, inshallah, um, we will actually be going into the former Dahibs uh, along with his formations and what we mentioned before. And really from there, taking the discussion into sort of the evolution that took place even after that, where you have this sort of idea of, you know, the Madahibs, how much precedence do they really have, and sort of the context that it requires in terms of actually blindly following or taking a Madahib and every single ruling from that Madahib. So, Zakallah Khayyar Salman, once again, uh, for joining us and you know going through this history and tackling it from all these various angles that have been really really beneficial um and once again to all our viewers um you know we would encourage everyone to subscribe and comment share your you know some of your contentions if you have any any discussions that you would like us to bring forward and also uh one of the things that was mentioned before that we were discussing was that a lot of the people were asking about other platforms that we have available and just to let you know that we are available on itunes on google play um and other platforms if you actually just go into the description box below and choose anchor it'll give you a full list of details where you can listen to the sound so once again and we'll inshallah see you on the next episode assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh